Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. We are at the Beatitude, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, and we'll also look at the one about being merciful. So here's how I'm translating this beatitude. Enviable are the ones who are consumed with a voracious hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will know satisfaction in full in me. And then enviable are, are those who show mercy, for they will be given mercy. All right, I want to look at the first beatitude. The Greek word righteousness is often misunderstood, or maybe better, it's it's too narrowly defined, too limited we're looking at only one aspect, important, but nevertheless, just one aspect and maybe not the most important. In the Greek, the noun dikaiosune and the verb dikaio can mean a number of things in context. First, they can refer to the quality of justice in the entire land, right? The court system or government. Um, so think of the current cry for social justice in our world today. Certainly, that would be a larger number of people who are hungry and thirsting for social righteousness or, or justice. Um, I can think now of the draconian COVID lockdown in China, where people are boarded up into their own homes without provision. Some have food, others do not. There's not enough medicine. It's an unfair, unright situation. It's unjust. It's incongruous. Or Ukraine, where they're suffering unfairly from an oppressor. They didn't deserve. They didn't earn, right? So, it's it's not right. Or racism, not right. Attacks on Asians in our country or the elderly. It's ugly. It's oppressive. It's unfair. It reflects a lack of justice in the land. Or righteous or righteousness can be personal. Think of a person, an individual who feels like they haven't received justice in some situation or that God or the world or the court system hasn't been fair in their situation. They've been wrongly incarcerated, maybe, or a victim watches as one who perpetrated a crime has been let off due to the current bail situ situation. Or biblically, think Job. He lost his family, no explanation. It was unfair. Even God says so twice. Think of that black man who's regularly stopped in his car or is experiencing one of the many faces of racism around. Think of that woman who's not giving, uh, getting, getting a fair equivalent shot at a career or paid less for the same work. Think of the gay young man who's feeling bullied at school unfairly. Lots of injustices around to pick from. We seem to be immersed in it. We seem to be more aware of it as well, at least in my lifetime, even in the country with one of the best judicial systems in the world. It's, it's everywhere. Paul got it right. All creation groans. There is unrighteousness all around us. It's part of the air we breathe. Inequities have existed since the fall, and they're going to remain until Jesus' return. Listen to Acts 17, 31. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. There's the word, takayosune. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. So is are these either of these what Jesus is referring to in the Beatitude? While they both use the same word, dikaio, dikaiosune, and they are both true vision and motivation for God's kingdom, kingdom future, kingdom present. And there will come a time when the injustice will be made into justice, right? God will wipe every tear of injustice and unfairness and unrighteousness for sure. But 
I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind in context here. I mean, partly so, but again, we're looking at just a single facet of the word dikaiosune. It lacks something important and very core to the gospel and to those people on the hillside, and by the way, to me. So there's a, a third facet of the word. It could refer to punishment of our sins by Jesus's death on the cross, ultimately, right? First Peter 2.24 is a good place. He himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. There it is. By his wounds you have been healed. Or Romans 4.5. However, to the man who does not work but trust God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So here we see both the noun form of dikaio and the verb form. So dikaio sune and dikaio. So I'm legally righteous with God, right with God, because of what Jesus did. I didn't do it. He did it. He did it legally. He took care of injustice on my behalf. The hymn writer said, justice smiles and asks no more because of what Jesus did. So my sins have been tried and justice satisfied. There is only now righteousness between God and me. God can never try me again for my many crimes. That would be double jeopardy. It would be unrighteous. I am related to God as if I am innocent, as if I had never done anything wrong because my guilt was put on Jesus's shoulders. He was tried on my behalf. I am legally now right, righteous. I have been righted in the narrow sense of the word dikaio. And again, this is true. It's a fine use of the word dikaiosune and dikaio. But is this what Jesus is speaking of? Again, it's, it's another facet, but I don't think it's capturing the most important part. But partly, yes, the Romans and Greeks of Jesus's day, and by the way, many Protestants still, we tend to overemphasize these three ethical, legal aspects of the word dikaio and dikaiosune. To be righteous in the eyes of the Roman law was to obey the, the law, every jot and tittle, to not subject yourself to guilt. And while this does ex express, it captures one aspect of righteousness, it can be a bit deceiving. For instance, the person who lives their life without breaking a single law or edict, right? I mean, that's a unicorn, right? But let's assume, imagine that person, they might be guiltless according to the law, meaning righteous in that sense, but not necessarily righteous in light of the fuller scope of the biblical word dikaiosune. In fact, they most likely are not. So this legal view of righteousness that we've been talking about is true, but it's a hollowed out version of the righteousness ultimately manifested by Yahweh alone, by Jesus alone. Righteousness, I mean, here it is. Righteousness is at its heart of hearts, relational relational. It's other-oriented. It's other-focused. It's the singular word that captures both movements of the two great commands, to love God and to love others. Those who do that are dikaiosune. They are righteous. Its greatest expression is a relational rightness with God himself. To be righted, to be made righteous, is to be adopted into good standing and loved then by God. We're right with God. See how the relational aspect of it and by the way, if I'm right with God, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to be grateful. If I'm right with other people, I'm going to be doing kind things and not doing harmful things. I'm going to uh, fulfill the law, right? Does that make sense? They all come together. So I think what Jesus is saying is to hunger and thirst after that righteousness, 
I think he's saying that ultimately means that you want to experience the pure favor of God toward you, to hear God whisper in your ear, you are my son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. You weren't right with God and others, by the way, and your status has now been changed so that you are the kaiosune with God. You're relationally right with God. You and God are more than good. Now, to accomplish that, some legal stuff needs to be dealt with. Justice has to be in the picture. There's the cross, right? But the end is different from the means. Here's John Barclay. I interpret the, wor- the verb dikaio, usually translated justify, as, quote, consider someone righteous, close quote. In a social context, this means, quote, consider someone to be in good standing, close quote, meaning socially acceptable. And in a legal context, quote, consider someone to be in the right, close quote, vindicated in a lawsuit. The verb does not mean make someone righteous or rectify their condition, but represents a judgment that someone is acceptable, honorable, and of value. Because of the theological battles that have raged over this word, it has sometimes been made to carry the wrong kind of freight, as if it means forgive or to make morally righteous or rectify. God is the implied subject here. Uh, Look at Galatians 3.11. And when God considers people righteous, they are being affirmed as acceptable people of value or worth. In this case, that is because they have been reconstituted in Christ and draw their life and identity from him. See Galatians 2, 19 to 20, close quote. And note that righteousness is not just positional, not just a status. Those who experience this favor from God are changed, and necessarily a little or a lot, they actually begin to experience that towards others. There is no such thing as an isolated individualistic righteousness. Not really. Righteousness is a relational dynamic. Those who are satisfied will love others and God more. They will show mercy more, right, to pick up the next beatitude. We'll get to that in a minute. Here's an example that I hope makes some sense. In Jewish history, there have been good kings, righteous kings, and evil kings, not righteous kings. And what made the difference? Well, first, it was their relationship to God. Did they rule dependent upon him, his wisdom, and his direction? Did they fear his judgment and wrath? Did they meditate and rule according to the Torah? Were they loyal to Yahweh? Did they seek to establish his worship throughout the land? Yeah, to one degree or another, though none of them did it perfectly. But secondly, and this is the one I want to focus on, the good and righteous king was the one who sought to bring a good and even happy life for all the subjects. See, one featured mean was through edicts at the time of their accession to the throne that led to remission of debts, freeing of slaves, restoration of the, of the land to its original owners, jubilee, right? They desired prosperity of others, even over their own. They celebrated the rights of all, including aliens and immigrants. They cared for economically desperate and challenged, the widow, the orphans. They were aware of the need for social justice and equality. In a sense, see, they were righteous. That's what made them good kings. And without such righteousness in the land, there could only be serial abuse and greed, racism, sexism, violence, injustice, poverty, um, economic discrepancies, harm. Hospitality would be absent. The least in society would be bullied, enslaved used, uh, most often against their will, and all creation groans in the void of righteousness. Well, 
This probably sounds familiar to you, right? Jesus's first sermon in Luke 4, it's the appropriate first words of a righteous king who has risen to his throne. And and listen to them in, in that light. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and a recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, this is not some casual Old Testament script reading. This was his heart, the heart of a righteous rabbi who had seen with his own eyes in his first three decades here the abysmal absence of righteousness and the harsh, cruel and and often violent consequences left in the formlessness and void. So he models for us what it looks like and feels like to hunger and thirst for an urgent restoration of righteousness in the land, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the tokoi, the prouse, the penthine, right? This was his passion. This is God's passion, no more, no less. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? There was no more other-oriented human being ever. So, not just a new fair trial, that's not what he's looking for, but these who began at the bottom of society's food chain, the beat up and bullied, they're moved to the top in his heart because of the Christ event. The new righteous desire, even at great cost to themselves and their own security and comfort, to bring about harmony for all throughout the land, even in the spiritual realm, they are to become peacemakers, right, in a previous beatitude. It's the very basis of God's rule for the world. They give without sparing to those in need. They're concerned for others. And so, circling back to the Roman narrow definition of the word, there is the possibility of a person to not break rules, but they just don't care for the well-being of others. They keep their actions righteous, some out of fear of prosecution or fear of the magistrates or fear of God or fear of losing face, uh, the need to gain reputation to look good in the eyes of others. But clearly their focus is on themselves, their security, their reputation, right? On the other hand, the righteous man or woman in the broadest sense, out of deep concern for the well-being of their neighbors, would also keep the laws. And in the end, both groups would tend to do right things, but their motives are, are different. They're wildly disparate. Those who are made right with God, filled with his spirit, want to make others' lives better. Those are the righteous men and women. Now, don't hear me blaming the violated ones for unrighteousness, suggesting that they would be more pleasing to God if they only thought less of themselves and more of others, right? That it's all on their shoulders. May God forbid. As I have considered this and thought about it, you know, I believe that some poor people not poor economically, but just tragic people, have been so shredded and violated by the powers of evil that, I mean, humanly speaking, they just can't think of others. They can't be merciful. They can't be peacemakers. They can only be and act like survivors because it's all been beaten out of them. Their drive at the end of the day is to have some semblance of security from the night, from the darkness, from their fear, some sense of their physical thirst and hunger satisfied, even a little and to buffer the pains of loneliness, right? At the end of the day, that's all. And who could expect more from them? I I don't. I can't. They've been emptied largely against their wills. It's not like they chose to be beat up. They can't do righteousness in their desperate state. They won't. And here's an image. Think of them as emptied and empty cups. They were meant to be full of life-giving water uh, for themselves and others. They were meant to be useful 
to righteous society, but due to abuse and misuse and misappropriation, they're only dusty and cracked, soon to be relegated to a garbage pile with all the other tragic refuse. They can't quench others' thirst. They just can't. They have more in their minds than the righteousness and well-being of others. Now, you can try to shame them into caring for others, but you're wasting your breath. They won't. They can't. And it's not all evil. It's not all their fault. But in the presence of Jesus, and then reconstituted as a people of worth, value, appreciated, accepted, loved, all as a result of his touch, his proclamation, his creative words, something happens inside such cracked and worthless vessels. They become filled a little or a lot. They become more whole a little or a lot. They begin to act righteously where they before wouldn't or couldn't. They now find themselves thinking less of themselves and more toward the well-being of others. They are becoming righteous and acting righteous, not perfect, nor near, but they begin to feel the need of others, even though their own voracious hunger and thirst isn't fully satisfied. They move outward like Jesus, and Jesus, for his part, just continues through his spirit in their inner being to fill and quench their own emptiness and make them more human and more whole and happier. It's as a result of Jesus' spirit of them, right? Not rules or laws or strings or shaming. Jesus' love towards them, the reason they have Jesus' love is not due to anything they've done. There's no requirement for it. But they slowly become like him. It's necessarily so. That's the dynamic of righteousness. They slowly become like him as they are increasingly more dependent upon a spirit of his righteousness in them. These former self-focused tokoi in spirit now are feeling real worth in relationship with Jesus. They're changed. Here's John Barclay again from his book, Paul and the Power of Grace. I recommend that book to you highly. It's a little heady, but oh my goodness, uh, very thoughtful. Here's what he says. Quote, the gift of Christ was the definitive act of divine grace and was an incongruous gift given without regard to worth. Because this gift did not fit with previous criteria of value, the Christ event has recalibrated all systems of worth, including the righteousness defined by the law. So those who had done little to reconcile with God were made righteous, made to experience that lift in status due to the gift of Jesus, now having a new benefactor, a new king, and now honored in their context. Here's Barclay again. Quote, Paul, we shall see, had an unusual, creative, and socially radical understanding of the grace of God arising from the gift, Christ, whereas good gifts were, and still are, normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients. Paul took the Christ gift, the ultimate gift of God to the world, to be given without regard to worth, and in the absence of worth, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that did not match the worth of its recipients, but created it. So important. It created it. Close quote. So those who hungered and thirst for some honor or worth or identity or face or status or being appreciated, they were satisfied beyond what they deserved or, frankly, could even imagine. Uh, They were made righteous in relationship with God. Now God loves them as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Let me talk about cups being filled. Here's Barclay again, quote, 
This is the root of his mission to the Gentiles, meaning Paul's, and his formation of communities that crossed social boundaries and ignored old hierarchies of worth. In fact, it was in the formation and the practices of these communities that the grace of God was evidenced. Moral and social transformation was not an optional extra in Paul's understanding of grace, but its necessary expression, because the gift of God in Christ brought into question the whole value system of the ancient world and took place in relationships, not just in the heart. Grace, it turns out, is not an idea or a thing, but a radical divine dynamic. Close quote. So the Audis were made innies, but they were also changed. And now they were actually showing mercy to others. They were looking a little more like Jesus, necessarily. Let's look at the next uh, beatitude, macarism. Enviable are the merciful, for they will be given mercy. Now, they're being merciful to others. They feel the desire and new motivation to be merciful because they first experienced the Christ gift. See, I'm going to suggest this is, in some ways, kind of Jewish rhetoric, is the reason they're merciful is because they were given mercy. You read it in reverse. Are you with me? The Christ community, I mean, those on that hillside that are being transformed by Jesus's proclamation and the power of his spirit, are showing the change, the birth pangs of wanting to care for others around them. Well, why? To be, to be a, oversimplistic is because of their voracious hunger and thirst for righteousness is being quenched a little, and his righteous yearning for the well-being of others is filling their hearts, is displacing their fears and insecurities. Or as Jesus puts it, expanded, enviable are the ones who were once necessarily self-focused, but who now are experiencing something that didn't exist before, an increasing heartfelt concern for the well-being of others around them. In the meantime, their ongoing well-being is my chief passion, and I tell you they will be satisfied by me. So on that hillside, stuff was happening. Uh, it, it was. It would have been obvious, and certainly in subsequent days and weeks and months, and we can see it, the vast majority of the crowd followed Jesus. I mean, think of that, these beat-up people who would have, would have been cynical and fearful and, and in some ways avoidant from the attachment theory standpoint, they followed Jesus. Uh, Augustine, we think, said uh, this following Latin phrase. It's at least ascribed to him, curvatus in se, which means the self turned in upon itself. At an extreme, it can describe the self-centered person who only wants more and more power, land, popularity, influence. But it's also reflective of the person who has been so depleted or emptied that they must be self-concerned about staying alive. The tokoi, the penthine, and prouse, humanly speaking, would be curvatus in se. It's not all their fault. It's partly their brain, the one that God actually designed. But then the Christ event took over. Something happened. Something new alongside the present curvatus in se. I mean, something was now there that wasn't there before, a powerful new motivation. They want to a little more and and are feeling more merciful to others. It's a testimony of the Christ event beginning to work. So all aspects of the Greek word dikaio, dikaio sune are all there, but ultimately Jesus's passion is to not just save people for heaven, but to make a bride for God, starting when we hear, starting when the Spirit comes. When he came, all that were there before on that hillside were unfortunate, unworthy brides. And then Jesus. Here's Barclay again. Quote, but in the ancient world, almost every aspect of worth, meaning righteousness, right? I'll I'll start again. But in the ancient world, almost every aspect of worth was dependent on one's public reputation, which was insecure, 
perpetually contestable at almost every point. To maintain your worth, you had to keep asserting it and defending it in the awareness that others could at any moment make a claim by which your worth would be undermined or outclassed. The rumor mill was the Roman social media, and they were ever anxious to make it clear that by one criterion or another, wealth, ancestry, education, legal status, physique, ethnicity, or character, their honor could be established in comparison with others. As Cicero puts it, quote, by nature we yearn and hunger for honor, and once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and to suffer in order to secure it. Paul's antidote to this social poison has two ingredients. On the one hand, those who have been reconstructed by the Christ event are no longer invested in the forms of capital in which most people find their worth. I love that. Let me read that sentence again. On the one hand, those who have been reconstructed by the Christ event are no longer invested in the forms of capital in which most people find their worth. Since ethnicity, status, and gender are no longer criteria of superior worth, and since God pays no regard to the face but distributes his grace without regard to worth, the normal grounds for competition have lost their significance. The believer's true and only worth is constituted by his or her identity in Christ, a gift received, not a status inherited or achieved. Within the new community, there stand out those whose lives are most marked by the new ethos created by this gift, those, for instance, who are spiritual and given responsibility insofar as they are attuned to the Spirit. All the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit are directed towards the construction of the community from love onward. Spiritual people are so designated because they work with sensitivity to repair the community, close quote. So this righteous gift, that this new status, uh, this new relationship with Jesus as your benefactor means that you're more satisfied, but you're also, you're looking around and you're actually feeling and showing more mercy to other tokoi. Barclay again. Within this community, honor, also righteousness, right, does not have to be sought. All of the honor that counts has been given already or will be given by God. Believers are freed from the need to establish their honor through competition or in retaliation against those who harm them, and they can afford to grant honor without reservation to others. In fact, Paul outlines a paradoxical inversion of the normal honor quest. In loving one another, believers strive to take the lead not in claiming honor, but in giving it to one another. Because this is done in a reciprocal way, no one is left demeaned but all are supported within a community where every member matters, close quote. This is stuff of Jesus' message for people like those on the hillside, and for me too. Jesus has come for broken vessels. Ultimately, we need the same thing. We need to be made whole. And when the filling starts, we begin a little to care about others more, right? So that's mercy, a diminished person who is just doing whatever it takes to survive the day, or the person who has a disease or rash that that, that separates them, that makes them lepers uh, socially, they don't have the power to do anything about it, or the person controlled by the demonic, uh, or who's feeling lonely and distraught, how can they show mercy, right? There's a power in their brain that's going to distract them 10 times out of 10. What wells in humanity can we draw from? And again, it's not all their fault. They can't, they won't. They need deliverance. They need something new. They need mercy. And when and as they receive such a rescuing new mercy, they begin to imagine and and consider being merciful. They will be more merciful. 
So Jesus said, enviable are the merciful, for they are the ones who experience his mercy over and over. Uh, real quickly, I want to show that there's a great deal of Old Testament precedent to see righteousness in this sense as the gift of God, not just something that you earned. There's a lot of righteousness in the Old Testament, which, which is spoken about as you earning or deserving. But check out these verses, Isaiah 46, 12 to 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I will bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. So here the uh, the prophet is speaking of par- uh, righteousness in parallel with salvation that God brings and, and distributes, right? We, we don't do it ourselves. Here's Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. See that parallel again? As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness. See, it comes from God, this particular righteousness, and praise to sprout up before all nations. This is what Jesus did on the hillside. Isaiah 62, 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you should be called by a new name, that the mouth of the Lord will give. See, righteousness and salvation, synonymous, parallel, and glory as well. It's new identity for God's people that can be seen, that God uh, uh, declares, makes happen. So think relational. A people will be made right with God and, it, and the world will see it. Something will change. This righteousness is a robe that's put on people by God, not their legal and moral choices. When I uh, lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, we were surrounded by at least 20,000 Sikhs. The Sikhs have this concept of mukti, which is similar to our righteousness. And and for them is if you do enough good works, works for your community, works for others, you develop a a storehouse of mukti. And if you have enough mukti, then then you're blessed in in the afterlife. So you work hard to do righteous things on behalf of the community and store up mukti. And and my evangelism to the Sikhs was, what if, first of all, I asked, well, how's it going for you? And of course, they all worried that they hadn't have enough. And what's enough? It's just not declared. So I said, what if someone could just, you know, from the celestial realm could just hand you, uh, you know, their, their mukti? And what if you would go into the afterlife with piles of this stuff more than you could ever earn? And to a person, they all thought that was a great idea until I told them I was speaking of Jesus. Uh, some actually listened and thought, oh my goodness, that's that's really good. So Jesus says that in my presence, the, the unrighteous, the rejects, will begin to hunger and thirst for restoration to the place of being and humanity that Adam and Eve were experiencing with God. That's what we've hungered for ever since the fall. And Jesus says they're going to be satisfied, not just in heaven future, but beginning in heaven now. They will begin to feel what they long for, not because they're good people, but because they're not, only because Jesus could say they're mine. So what about doing righteousness? What about reformed conduct? Are we saying that's not important? Is Jesus implying that? No, let me give you five things here. First, no, Jesus, remember we said as hypernomian, obedience to the commandments of God is critical right? It's not optional, and it must be done 100% of the time. Jesus wrote the stuff. Second, no one does it. 
or will. There's no one righteous. No, not one. Only Jesus, the only human who's ever uh, been 100% righteous. Why is it that we, there's three, why is it that we don't love God and love our neighbors the way we're commanded, right? All, why has all humanity struggled with that? Because in this fallen, groaning creation, there's something deeply broken inside our brain. We won't. We to a certain degree, don't want to. We we don't feel love or mercy or peacemaker for our neighbors or God, not anywhere close as we should. We can't. We've been beat up too much. I'm just saying there's inner working models, according to the attachment theory, that, that are very powerful, that make us selfish to one degree or another. So the outward love, righteousness, the kind of love that's the fruit of the Spirit, innate to God, not to us, uh, we need. We And to pull it off, we need to experience being made right with God, but we also need to access this righteousness of the Spirit, this external righteousness. And both will have in heaven, for the necessary result of the Christ event is that we will begin to want to love our neighbor and God more. We will be more righteous. We will tend towards more right conduct because we begin to want to. It's a miraculous change, not to earn anything more from God like the Sikhs, but because we have it. And five, and Jesus's righteous record, what he earned, becomes ours, and it purchases for us a perfect right relationship with God and his love towards us, which we can begin to experience. And to experience that, we have to ask God for power through his spirit in our inner being, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. So listen, there are days and hours and moments that I'm still desperate to feel the embrace of God to feel righteousness. And I know in my rational brain that he loves me. I got that theology down. But I'm not always feeling it. I'm not always experiencing it. I don't wake up experiencing the righteousness. There are times when I appeal to God and ask him to first make me want to feel his embrace, his hug, him being proud of me, and secondarily to make me feel it. I, I don't take this for granted as much as I did when I was a young Christian. The hunger and thirst to feel God's love for me, I'm finding is a fruit of his spirit. And so Jesus says, enviable are the ones who are consumed with a voracious hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will know satisfaction in full in me. Listen, I hope that's making sense. Uh, we churches should be obviously more into social justice, not because it's the right thing to do, because we actually feel it. We should be concerned about injustices in our land. We should be concerned with with moral inequities, economic inequities, social justice of all kinds, just because of the the righteousness of God in us, according to Luke 4. That should be our, our mission, not just to grow churches, but to help people who are broken and, and lead them to the righteousness in Christ, right? I'm not saying that judgmentally. I struggle with this, right? But I'm just thinking it should be more obvious. We begin with asking the Holy Spirit to make us feel it and to, to make us satisfied a little bit per the beatitude. Does that make sense? Hey, listen, push back. There was a lot. It was a, it was a fire hose on the idea of righteousness, but it's very important. I recommend Barclay's book to you. And listen, we'll see you in the, the next Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senior. Take heart, child of God. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. 
her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.